Hello and welcome to APW's Property Podcast. On this show, we dive into all manner of topics relating to UK property with a very Erethian mission of educating, informing and entertaining. Uh, APW is a company that advises people from all over the world on buying property in the UK and has been doing that for over 30 years. And today we're joined by Lisa Pierce from APW. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hi, guys. How's it all going? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Enjoying the sunshine. Ah, yes. And we're also delighted to welcome back legal expert Stephen Clark from legal firm Russell Cook. Hi, Stephen. Hello. Hello. Uh, Well, thanks for coming back. Uh, Last time you took us through a couple of episodes on conveyancing and conveyancing searches. Um, uh, For listeners, if you haven't heard them already, I would encourage you to get onto Spotify or other podcast dispensaries and find the episodes in our growing catalogue of previous episodes. But for those listeners who are new to this podcast, Stephen, um, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, the firm Russell Cook. Well, that's very kind. Russell Cook um, is a firm that has been around for well over 125 years. Uh, we are um, one of the top 100 firms in the UK. We have uh, some 65 partners. We have a broad base. Uh, property is a particular is a particular specialisation, both commercial and residential. Uh, but we do a lot of other work as well. I've been a partner here for many years. Okay. Um, well, today we're going to look at a property fundamental in the UK, which is um, freehold and leasehold. Um, Lisa, perhaps you could start us off by telling us what freehold and leasehold mean. Yeah, sure. Um, the freehold title um, to a property means that the freeholder owns the property outright as well as the land beneath it. With a leasehold, you own the property subject to the terms of the lease between the leaseholder and the freeholder for the length of time that the lease allows. Okay. Um, I'm going to add a caveat to that, uh, all based entirely on that font of wisdom, the internet, and then we can ask our legal experts uh, to mark our homework. Um, uh, Strictly speaking, all the land in England and Wales technically belongs to the Crown. Uh, There are some estates where title can be claimed back to Edward the Confessor, apparently, but generally we date back to William the Conqueror. Our Norman overlord would grant the use of estates of land to noblemen who in turn allowed farmers and others to use parts of the estate in return for rent or a tithe or services. Uh, So what landowners actually own is the right to use and occupy the land. Fee simple absolute in possession is the proper name for freehold land. And it breaks down like this. A fee is an estate in land and a fee simple is an estate in land which is free from restriction. How are we doing so far, Stephen? Would you like to... A minus at least. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you. And uh, what else is uh, what else is there in modern law, Lisa, that that helps us? Okay, and before 1925, there were many different types of estates, um, but following the law of Property Act in 1925, it reduced it to just the two, which was the freehold and leasehold. Okay, and have you got round to reading the Law of Property Act 1925, Lisa? Um, no, funnily enough, I haven't, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's on my bedside waiting to be read. But uh, <laughs> Stephen, over to you. What, uh, what does this mean in practice, this uh, freehold and leasehold? And uh, where does the land registry come into it? Right, well, um, the land registry is there as a central register and um, readily accessible to show who owns what property. The Law of Property Act 1995 was the leading piece of legislation that introduced, that extended dramatically the range of registered land. Um, land registered may be freehold or it may be leasehold, but the idea is you have a central register so you can see who owns what. 
Now, freehold obviously is um, straightforward, simple, ideal, as it were, total ownership. It may be subject to certain conditions and covenants, which we can go on into later, but that is you own the land from the, the center of the earth to the top of the sky, as it were, that's your property. Leasehold, as um, Lisa has explained, is um, a more qualified ownership in which um, you only own the land for a set number of years, whatever the lease provides, and you are bound by the terms of that lease and you have a landlord who is, is, has, a, has the superior, probably, freehold interest. So, and the key point, of course, about leasehold is that unlike freehold, it's a diminishing asset as the lease gets shorter. Yes, and I, I saw in my researches as well, going back to the land registry thing, that there are still um, bits of unregistered land, aren't there, where, where actually it's the old-fashioned, you know, you've got the scrolls somewhere in the state, literally, safe, or you've got, you've got deeds with a kind of, by order of Henry VIII. Um, literally, I have a, a fine set of um, late 19th century deeds which arrived the other day. Um, you don't often see them, but yes, some land is, a little bit of land is still unregistered, where it hasn't changed hands for generations, particularly, for example, some of the long, you know, long landed estates, but it is increasingly rare. Yes, and uh, but now, whenever any of those um, pockets of unregistered land change hands, they there is a, a they have to be registered now, don't they? So it's effectively the land registry gradually over time putting everything onto their uh, central database. Absolutely right. Uh, but okay, so what do they hold, and what do you see on these titles when you when you call up the titles in from the land registry? It comes in in three sections. The first section is the property register, which tells you the address of the property. The second section is the proprietorship register, which tells you who owns it, and the third section is the charges register, which critically tells you what restrictions or covenants that land is subject to okay well so let's let's dive into the covenants then and how, how do they work what are they and what sort of things appear on there well <clears throat> when you sell land you may want to impose restrictions on how it's used in future you may not want you may sell land at the field at the back of your house you may not want someone to build a book of flats on so you are entitled, if you can agree with the buyer, to impose covenants as to how that land is used. For example, a Methodist church in the 19th century would sell land often with restrictions against the sale of alcohol um, for their own teetotal um, reasons. Okay, and, no, um, no, pub, no pubs next to no Methodist pubs. chapels then. Okay. Exactly, no pubs next to Methodist chapels. Um, and, and when you sell land for building, you may well want to impose restrictions as to how it's built. You may want to say, you need my consent to the plans to make sure I approve of what you're building. Um, the question, is the consent of the person with the benefit of the covenant not to be unreasonably withheld? So you have some measure as to how it can be exercised. But the sort of things that get dealt with in covenants are the use of property, uh, what purposes it's used for, alterations to property, those are the most common areas. And how do they, how, how does that sort of echo down the generations or, or through time? Do those, are those common covenants in perpetuity or are they time restricted? Or, and how, how, do they, 
how do they relate to th- things like kind of agricultural land or, or zoning or the, well, any that, other kind of? That's a great question. There are um, two points. The first point is that um, in order to be entitled, to the, the, well, the first point is that once the covenants are imposed on the land, then they will tend, they will subject to what I'm about to say, wrong with the land. They are the big distinction is between positive covenants and negative covenants. And the key issue is that in order to be able to enforce a covenant, the person with the benefit of it has to own land that benefits from that covenant. So going back to my chap who sells the field at the bottom of his land and wants to stop a block of flats being built on it, as long as he or his successors still own the original property that is next door to the field, then they retain the benefit and they can enforce the covenant. So you've got to have land that benefits from the covenant. However, um, the big distinction is between positive and negative covenants. Negative covenants, you must not build a rock of plants, are enforceable by future owners. Positive covenants saying you will do something, you will put up a fence or whatever it is, are only enforceable by the original the original person who imposed it, unless you make um, what is called a chain of covenants where you can specifically provide that on each sale the, the benefit passes, but you have to construct that separately, which is more complicated. Well, okay, so, so yes, it gets a little bit complicated there, but what, what's the actual sort of, can you summarise that in a sort of natural process of like you say, someone benefiting from the land, if they still own it, then obviously they don't want the, the disco at the bottom of their garden. But uh, how, how does it, what's the original purpose of it? Where did that sort of creep into law? Well, because one is entitled to have any sorts of rights over property, in addition to just ownership. And among the, so among those rights you may reserve when you sell the property, is to have restrictions on how that property is used. In the same way, you have rights, you may enjoy rights over property, you may have rights of way or things like that. There are any number of rights that are separate from actual ownership. And so you can retain covenants which give you rights to restrict how adjoining property is used while you don't actually own the land. Yes. Okay. So that's, uh, and uh, yes, uh, there's a kind of quirky in, in London, isn't there, which is, the sort of rights of passage or the rights of way, uh, sometimes someone built on top of that. Uh, so, so you have what's called a flying freehold over a kind of little footpath underneath sometimes, don't you? It's actually something more complicated than that. <laughs> okay. you may, you may, um, a right of way is a right of passage over land is not interfered with by somebody building something well above it. Flying freehold is not necessarily tied to rights of way. It is where the whole point about a freehold is that it is vertically divided it's it's vertically divided from adjoining property and if you have a bit that sticks out of the side underneath or over somebody's property then you've got what's called a flying freehold because it's a piece of air basically and however in practice um, that is normally dealt with now by insurance okay okay yeah so um what about uh, the question of shared freeholds, which uh, crops up now? So how, how does that work? When you have multiple leases or multiple apartments in, right. a, in a block, there is this capacity to share a freehold. How, how does that work? Well, if you, um, if you own a flat or if you buy a flat, you will, by definition, be buying 
a leasehold property because you're not buying the whole, you know, from the ground to the air, you're just buying the third floor flat. So you will be in, say, a block of flats and somebody will own the freehold. Now, quite that may be a property investor, but quite commonly, the freehold of blocks of flats is held by a management company controlled by the various flat owners. So you then would then say, yes, I have a share in the freehold. I have a share in the freehold because um, uh, I live in Acacia Mansions, flat three, and the freehold is owned by Acacia Mansions Management Limited, and I am a member of that company. I have a share in that company. So yes, you would be involved in the um, in the freehold and how decisions are made. So communal decisions about how the block of flats is run, maintenance costs, and the like. Yes, because um, this has been an issue uh, recently, hasn't it? The relationship between the leaseholder and the freeholder does have uh, within the leases certain things like whether ground rent was was one issue uh, and then the service charges but they usually flow through a management company of some kind which is appointed by the freeholder i guess so uh, can you explain a little bit more about how those works I mean, start off we've already touched on the management uh, company and the service charges and they can be quite expensive yes let, uh, that, that, let me let me go through that Classically, your lease will be, it may be 99 years or 150 years or whatever. And historically, you would normally pay a modest rent called a ground rent. And that may be anything from sort of £10 a year upwards, £200 a year or whatever. And you will also pay a service charge, which is your contribution towards the upkeep of the block of flats. If you own the freehold, you own your freehold house, the roof needs repairing, you pay for it yourself. If you live in a block of flats, the roof needs repairing, then it's paid for communally through the service charge. Uh, there have been issues, ground rent firstly, um, some landlords were taking advantage in seeking ground rents which were high and increased dramatically as the years went by. That has now been stopped for new leases, so any leases now granted then landlords are not allowed to impose any ground rent at all. So far as service charges are concerned, there is a lot of uh, legislation, uh, Landlord and Tenant Act 1985 is the main body of legislation, which is intended to protect flat owners from onerous service charges. And there are a raft of restrictions on freeholders, whether they're investment landlords or whether they're the management company of a flats, to make sure that they get proper estimates, they get independent estimates, they consult with lessees with a view to monitoring costs and lessees should be getting that information, should be seeing annual accounts. And obviously the advantage of having a flat in a block of flats where the freehold is owned by the lessees to their management company is that you haven't got any third party seeking to make a profit out of it and you do have between you control and influence. So if with all of that, what would you advise property investors just to be to be aware of and to keep an eye on as they as they go through a purchase? Um, I mean, obviously, obviously, the first thing is seek legal advice. (laughs) Let's the simple end freehold things to watch out for Uh, your solicitor should certainly tell you uh, of any covenants on the title which will restrict what you might be able to do with the property. There may very well be no covenants at all, but that's what's checking out. 
Um, if you're buying a property in a development, say a development of 50 new houses, then there may well be provisions regarding communal costs there, which are dealt with um, through a maintenance agreement. Rather, it's very similar to service charges in blocks of flats, but in terms of maintaining communal roadways and if it's gated developments, the electric gates that opened it and so on. Um, yes, it may, so, it may be a private road, in fact, owned by the freeholder or, or like yeah. you say, the collective of houses, and that yes, and, requires and, maintenance and so on. And again, very often on a, uh, a state of freehold houses, very often it is the house owners who will end up owning the freehold and running the, that exercise. The costs obviously tend to be much more modest because everybody looks after their own house. Um, in terms of leasehold property, key things to look out for, you may have covenants on the, on the title, as you would with freehold, so you, you want to make, have a look at, make sure your solicitor checks that. And your solicitor will certainly need to check the lease carefully to make sure uh, what restrictions it imposes. For example, alterations. Um, do you need the landlord's consent to, if you want to carry out alterations to your flat? You almost definitely will need consent. Is there a total ban against any alterations? That would be very onerous. Or is there just a total ban against structural alterations? That's not uncommon. If you want to let the flat out, do you need to get the landlord's consent in advance or can you just do it? Some leases, if you want to sell the flat, you need the landlord's consent. They can't unreasonably withhold it, but it just is a bit more process and a bit more cost. Okay. Uh, user, uh, again, user is normally not, is not an issue, but again, make sure that you have the flexibility you need. So there's those issues on the leases. Uh, the other obviously key issue is how long is the left on the lease? The value of the lease will diminish as it gets nearer the end. And also your ability to raise mortgage finance on it will be affected. Mortgagees, lenders do tend to be sniffy about leases with, say, much less than 60 years left. However, there is um, legislation which is really important if you're buying a flat by which you can individually extend the length of your lease, whether the landlord likes it or not, by adding 90 years to the length of the lease and cancelling any ground rent there may be, um, but you have to pay a premium and there is a mechanism by which you can uh, argue about and you get to your surveyor to advise and negotiate and determine what that premium will be. So that is individual lease extension. The second thing you have is the ability for flat owners in a block of flats to get together and a majority of qualifying lessees, flat owners, and certain, certain others can, again, require the landlord, whether he likes it or not, to sell the freehold to them. That is um, collective enfranchisement. Uh, it only happens if you have a majority of consenting lessees for, uh, to pay for it. Again, there's a mechanism for doing it, but it is, means that you can take control of your, of your flat. The third version of that is that qualifying majority uh, have the ability, if they want to, if they're dissatisfied with the way a third party landlord is managing the flat, to take over control of the management and appoint their own managing agent. Okay. Just, there's one so, other piece of legislation mentioned very briefly, which is that if um, with blocks of flats, if the landlord wants to sell the, the freehold he has to offer it to the lessees first and if they cooperate and get together they may be able to acquire it that way 
Yes, I mean, obviously, in the in the deep countryside, one of the issues is uh, footpaths, and people uh, argue about whether a footpath it should be there, or whether it should be moved, or whether the landowner has, has covered it up. In the big cities, it actually relates to the underlying freehold, doesn't it? In London, particularly, there are many estates, uh, the Grosvenor Estate, uh, and the the Belgrave Estate. And the Langham Estate and the the Portland Estate are all strung around Oxford Street, and the underlying freehold belongs to those families. Uh, but over time, it has become a little bit more patchwork, and uh, then this legislation about people being allowed to buy the freehold also has then impacted as the uh, as the underlying freehold kind of disappears from some of those big landowning estates. Well, that's again, this, it's, uh, there's a wonderful pattern of historic landed estates. Uh, the Grosvenor estate in particular, where one of the Grosvenor family married Mary Davis of Ebury in the 17th century, who happened to own a lot of fields, and they just happened to be what is now Mayfair. Um, so, yes, yeah, so marsh, marshland I heard it described as as well. It wasn't, it wasn't really prime agriculture, it was a bit soggy. Well, it's, and it's now absolutely prime, prime commercial and residential property. So what happens with the landed estates is that they have to some extent been split up because of this legislation, which enables people to um, buy, well, it enables uh, lots of flats to buy the freehold of their flats. Uh, what we haven't mentioned is that um, there is also the uh, Lease Reform Act of 1967, which enabled owners of houses which were held on leases to buy the freehold of their houses. So that was originally introduced for quite low-value houses, but the financial restrictions have been removed. So now very valuable houses in the centre of London, if you happen, if they happen to be on a lease from one of these big estates, you can, if you are subject to restrict various restrictions, you can purchase the freehold again, whether the estate likes it or not. What happens on those big estates, though, certainly Grover Estate, is that they do have a statutory enforceable uh, estate governance plan, which does still uh, apply to the estate, even where people have bought their freehold. So, which is, if you go to those parts of London, you may notice, for example, the Grover Estate, the wonderful terraces of cream houses. The reason they're all the same colour is that is a restriction on the estate that still is enforceable even against people who people. Okay, so there's a colour chart, a colour chart for your front door. Um, Lisa, is there any questions that? Uh, uh, well, we've got Stephen here. Any questions from you about uh, leasehold and freehold? No, I think um, he's pretty much covered it all. I was, it's been great. It's been really knowledgeable. Great, thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, Stephen, uh, for your expertise. The wealth that came from some of these uh, landed estates, I mean, it's still echoing down the generations. I, you know, certainly those, the Oxbridge colleges, uh, you know, there was a uh, an idea that you could walk from land owned by the two Johns colleges between Oxford and Cambridge. They owned land the whole way through. The Crown Estate still owns a lot. Um and then these these central London landed estates, like the Grosvenor one, how, how is that changing? I suppose is the is the question. Well, it's it's changing in the uh, control is moving because the more buildings in those estates which are controlled by house owners or lessees, the less control, obviously, for the 
landed estates, but subject to these um, subject to these statutory estate plans. It was said of um, Earl Cadogan, who actually died last week. If you read his obituary in the Times, it mentioned how he could stroll from I think Harvey Nichols all the way down um, Sloan uh, down Sloan Avenue to, to Sloan Square, and then stroll off down the King's Road without leaving his own land. So this there is still this historical continuum. Yes, there was a, a French quote which was, "I like to feel my money beneath my feet," uh, <laughs> from a property owner. But as I say, thank you very much, Stephen, for your expertise today, and thank you to Lisa. Bye from Lisa. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> and goodbye from Stephen. Goodbye. And uh, goodbye from me. My name's Paul Shearer. Thanks to to Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio for producing. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.